Welcome to Willoughby Hills. I'm Heath Rosella. I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad my guest is here too. Sarah Suzanka is my guest, author, architect. She wrote a series of books. I think there's like 10 or so in total. The first one, though, was called The Not-So-Big House, and it's kind of what spawned the series beyond that. Everything from not-so-big solutions for your home, outside the not-so-big house, inside the not-so-big house, not-so-big remodeling. She's she's kind of written a lot of books on this idea of a not-so-big house. So what is a not-so-big house? We'll get into it today, but it's this idea that you don't need a massive amount of square footage. You don't need a bunch of extra bedrooms, a bunch of extra bathrooms, whatever it is, whatever people think they need in a house. You actually need a lot less if you build it intentionally. And Sarah shows that through her series of books, how you can get these high quality homes that may not be as big, but you're actually putting the money instead of just into gross space, you're putting it into space that you're really going to use, space that you're going to be in every day and space that's going to feel true to you and make you want to spend time there. And I got to tell you, this book and and really all of her books, they were just kind of part of the DNA of this old house when I was there. Uh, Sarah's first book was published in 1998. I started this old house in 2005. And a lot of her books were kind of being published around the time when I was working there. And a lot of my colleagues were huge readers of Sarah's and huge fans. And we collaborated with her. And yeah, it's amazing to me sitting down and actually reading the book cover to cover like I did before this interview, I I had always just kind of flipped through it and looked at pictures and read the sidebars and things. But to really intentionally read it, I realized a lot of her principles were things that I was already doing kind of subconsciously in our house. We've lived here 15 or so years at this point. And she talks a lot about just building in storage, you know, and not just big closets and walk-in closets, but really every space can have some sort of built-in that can help you be organized, that can help keep clutter out of the way. It might be a bookshelf, it might be a window seat, whatever it is. But, uh, you know, I I found that I have already, (laughs) over the last several years, unknowingly kind of channeled Sarah's principles and applied them to my own house. So that was nice in reading that. So we will talk a lot today about the not-so-big house. I was curious, though, I wanted to talk to her, and and we'll dive into that at the beginning here, sort of where this idea of quality versus quantity fits in with another idea that was happening around the same time that she was writing, which is new urbanism. If you're not familiar, new urbanism is the idea that you can build a new subdivision out in the suburbs, but you can base it off of kind of the old inner ring neighborhoods that work really well in a lot of our older cities. So tighter lot spacing, smaller front yards often, usually very near to the sidewalk so that you can kind of pass your neighbors and and say hello, often with front porches. And another key piece often in these uh, new urbanist developments is that they're mixed use, that you can walk to shopping and they're also mixed income. Uh, So there's apartments, sometimes above shops, sometimes as dense apartment buildings, there's kind of middle-class houses, and sometimes there's even, you know, really high-end homes. And if, you, if you've if you seen the movie The Truman Show, Seaside, Florida was the location they used to film The Truman Show. That's a real town. That was kind of the first new urbanist development. 
There's another really interesting one called Celebration right near Walt Disney World that was developed uh, by the Disney company and is now kind of a separate city. But I've shot there and, and have always been fascinated by it. So I wanted to talk to Sarah just about where new urbanism and not-so-big house intersect because they feel like related ideas. And uh, yeah, it was just something that came in my head as I was reading. So we will talk a lot about new urbanism today. But the other interesting thing that Sarah's done is she's taken her architecture and remodeling background and turned it into another book that I've been reading as well called The Not-So-Big Life. And this is like right in the bullseye. If you've been reading my newsletter for, you know, the last year or so, like everything she's talking about in The Not-So-Big Life is things that either I've been trying to understand in my own life or wrestle with or, you know, figure out. She's put it there and for me, what was amazing is she's put it in the terms of architecture and remodeling and kind of approaching making your life better the same way that you would approach a home remodel. If you're a fan of, of the podcast and the newsletter, The Not-So-Big Life will be right up your alley as well. So I, I encourage you to go check that out. If you're not reading the newsletter yet, please go subscribe to that, heathrasala.com slash newsletter. And yeah, you know, I, I think it's it's aligned with a lot of what Sarah's talking about. So anyways, I'm very excited for this conversation. I hope there's something that you will get out of it. Here it is, my talk with Sarah Shazanka. I wanted to start, I guess I want to kind of go through your whole series of books, uh, starting yeah. with Not So Big House, though, because I was looking back as I was reading it these past couple of weeks, and I, I noticed the copyright date's 1998, which... Are we right. at 25 years? Is that right? Yes, this year. That's Amazing. pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, how does that feel? Hard to believe. Well, you know, I think of my life as pre-not-so-big house and post-not-so-big house. Yeah. Uh, it did definitely change my life. But um, in some ways, it feels, you know, as time often does, in some ways, it feels like it can't possibly be 25 years. Yeah. And in other ways, it feels like that was a lifetime ago. Right. You know, it's got that paradox to it. Right, right. Like a lot of things, like you said. Yeah. I'm curious, like in thinking, too, about the context of that, because I feel like another big thing that was happening around that time, uh, new urbanism and kind of, you know, celebration in Florida had opened two mm -hmm. years prior to the publication, which it's not... Yeah exactly the same idea, but it's kind of taking a lot of your same Very principles. Similar. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, in fact, uh, Andres Duani, who was one of the key players in sure. the Nupinism, and I have known each other for decades. Oh, wow. Okay. They were parallel world. It was like these two movements really grew up in parallel. Right. And there was the, the thoughts about a smaller but better designed house and a you could say a smaller but better designed community, right? Both based on understandings from the past, but bringing them into the present moment as a way to really revitalize our experience of home. Yeah. Well, but I'm curious, like in your mind, what was going on in in the mid to late nineties? I'll that, tell you. Yeah. Like, why it did was, we need it then? Well, I was a residential architect, uh -huh. and I was uh, part of a firm of forty five people. I was one of the founding partners. And I used to drive all over the place to my various projects. And I was doing some work in Iowa, uh -huh. which I was in Minnesota at the time. I now live in North Carolina. But in Iowa, there's these acres and acres of cornfields. And sure. suddenly, all across the landscape are these gargantuan behemoths. I call them uh, starter castles in my book. Yeah. But basically, 
McMansions that had no there there. Right. They just were, you know, volume for volume's sake. And I went to people's houses where they were saying, how do I make this more personal? I'd look inside those things. And I think, wow, where do you start? Yeah. And so I realized what's really needed is something that helps people understand that for many of us, we don't need a bigger house. We need a better house. Right. It was just like I could feel this surge of frustration because there was nothing out there to help people make better choices with their money on their houses. But better's not, and this is obviously like kind of the whole premise of the book, like better's not right. just smaller. Like you're talking about kind of square footage yeah. and stuff there, but like, what is it in your mind it's that quality. made it? Yeah, yeah. It's about, it's, the thing that is not well understood, and our, our, our housing market still has the same issue involved, which is that we look at the amount of money we have to spend, and then we equate that to a square footage. Mm. And home has nothing to do with square footage. Right. I mean, there are certain things we need to accommodate. But what I tried to get the, in the in all of my book series on house design, I've really suggested make your house about a third smaller than you thought you needed, but use the same amount of dollars so that the quality of what you're building is far better and it's going to fit you more like a well-tailored suit than like a sack. And right. those... Uh, you know, in Iowa, those those houses marching across the cornfields were like sacks. Yeah, they're not better. They d they don't make you feel good. You you know, people often say, "Well, we built this. We thought it was our dream home, but this isn't it. So we'll build another one." I yeah. just wanted to help people have a way of building what they really love first time around. Right, right. Getting back to that kind of new urbanist connection too. Like, then, I'm curious, sort of, how much because at least in the first book, I didn't necessarily see that connection explicitly but like how much do you think the context of the house matters beyond just you know the four perimeter walls well it's important that you know there's so many different situations that people build in when i was practicing residential architect in minnesota we did a lot of inner ring suburb yep. new homes and remodelings then the context is incredibly important the context in a five acre parcel of land is also important, but it's totally different. Right, it's about right. then contours and orientation to the sun and views. and It's not one size fits all. But uh, in terms of the new urbanism, for those of your listeners that don't know what it is, it's really about making a, a community that has probably somewhat smaller properties where you have some interconnection with your neighbors and with the street, but still maintain privacy in the places that you want that privacy, much more like the old inner ring suburbs. Yeah. And so we learned the lessons in the new urbanism of the older suburbs and brought them into present day communities. And they're some of the best places in the country to live. Certainly. No, I, I agree with you. And, you know, one of the things you cited, um, it was kind of a sidebar on Sears houses. And just like yeah. this idea, my grandparents uh, had a Sears house that I, you know, I yeah. felt like I grew up in. It was six houses down right. the road from me. But there is something about the idea of kind of mass market, high quality that, that was happening in, you know, the, the 1910s, 1920s that we lost somewhere. And like, I guess I just wonder, like, do you see, what What do you think caused that decline of quality? And how do we start getting that back? Like, is there a version, if, if I can't afford an architect like you or right, you know, something right. like that, how do I? The thing that, yeah. just to address the history first, sure. I think in the 1910s and 1920s, when all those lovely little 
really arts and crafts style houses. The Sears houses were an outgrowth of that whole world. Sure. People started to realize a version of what I, I started to write about and uh, the new urbanism was about uh, in the late 90s, that people had built bigger and bigger and bigger Victorian houses. And a lot of the population was saying, but we don't need that much space. We want mm. a nice house. And a lot of architects got together and built and put together plans that people could buy through places like Sears. And many of us in the architectural world over the last 20 or 30 years have been attempting to bring that world back alive. Yeah. But we have this instinct, especially in this country, so if we've got more money, we've got more capacity, we make it bigger. And so the real key is that bigger hasn't always meant better. Right. You can make a very beautiful big house, but it doesn't happen very often. Yeah. <laughs> I've designed houses for people who have plenty of resources, and we've used the techniques that I talk about in my books to make a beautiful bigger house. But the, for most people, when we have a limited set of resources financially, let's use it really well. Yeah. And in my book, that also includes with good, sustainably grown, you know, wood and that sort of thing that allow you to really make the resources something that's going to do the right thing by the planet at the same time. Yeah. And you, you talk about that in the book, I remember, of like, there was a time where you could get, you know, tax credits and different incentives for building um, right. to a certain level of efficiency. Then that kind of went away. It's it's obviously starting to come back. Right. But that if you design it well, the savings are there anyways, kind of like it's not. Yeah, that's it. And it's not. It's This is a tricky thing because you don't instantaneously see those savings. Uh -huh. But over the, you know, probably the first 15 years of the house's life, it starts to to build back the extra money that you spent on the good insulation and the, you know, making sure you have good air quality and uh, higher quality materials. And thereafter, that house is not absorbing enormous amounts of uh, natural resources that it doesn't need to. Right. It's it's a more comfortable uh, environment. So making that argument is often tricky if somebody's right down to the wire on how much money they can afford for sure. the house. But my books are really an attempt to help understand the big picture cost of that house and the big picture effect on your well-being, which right. is a part that we don't really quantify very well, but it's incredibly important. I was just going to go there because I feel like mm -hmm. a lot of what you're talking about is things that are not easy to quantify or not easy to, to calculate, not. at least, you know, air That's quality right. or comfort or whatever it is, but that like I guess it's it's not something we think about, and I'm not even just thinking about housing, but even like the right. food we eat or the clothes we buy or whatever. Got it. All like, of the same. I often use the the things that we eat yeah. as an, a parallel movement, uh -huh. you know, in in the world of just understanding that the nutrients we're putting into our body have an effect on our health right. long term, and you know, so it's it's just learning how to find the happy medium. Where you're not, I mean, you can spend an exorbitant amount of money on food, for example. Sure. Have absolutely the most perfect ingredients. But where is the point in the cost cycle where that's enough and this is extra? Yeah. And it's the same thing with houses. We've got to find that happy medium. And my books are really trying to hand to the general public a kind of manual for how to uh, determine that. Incidentally, in terms of books that your listeners might be 
find useful. Sure. Not to make houses sort of like the basic philosophy, but if you're remodeling a house, not so big remodeling, it really talks about that because so many of our older houses leak like sieves and right. are wasting an unbelievable amount of energy. And so just learning how to make sensible decisions in the big picture of your remodeling plans to improve the energy efficiency of that home. It's pretty important. Yeah. Well, I feel like part of it too, like you were talking about like a 15-year payback and things like that. <laughs> like we do move a lot in this country. I mean, even you're just talking about yourself, right. you know, being in yes, Minnesota and now exactly, North Carolina. Right, right. Like yeah. is the reason that we move so often, how much of it do you think is bad design and how much of it is that kind of insatiability of just wanting more and, and needing to upgrade? Oh, it's, I can't tell you the proportions, but I, I've heard a lot of people tell me they moved because they thought they were building their final house and they don't like it very much. So mm. that's a pretty common thing. Yeah. But we are very mobile. We move around for jobs, for family, for all sorts of things. And so it's pretty typical that people are going to move multiple times over the course of their adult life, even in some occasions when they've made the house design so that they can live there for the rest of their lives. I've done this for many young couples, but then they get transferred and suddenly they're in Seattle instead of in Minnesota, whatever it is. And right. the way that I like to think about the house is you make it for yourself, but know that if you do sell it, it's going to be loved by someone else yeah. and it's going to be energy efficient and help somebody else's life uh, be less costly in terms of utilities, that right. sort of thing. That way you really see the bigger picture of, of what a house is. But I think, I, I'm sure you run into this with clients too, where people like, there's a fear about spending too much money, especially on something too custom because uh, of the worry about resale value. And like, it, is is yeah. resale value really kind of the boogeyman that we think it is? Or It is. Yeah. It is the boogeyman. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like when you go to sell, like how yeah. much, like, are you really a beautiful house like you're sitting in there? Yeah. Clearly built to, you know, you've got a, people can't see it obviously on this, but right. there's a desk behind right. you that's, you yeah. know, you could lay out big plans on and stuff and a bookshelf, yeah. but like right. somebody else might not need that space. How do you convince somebody that this, you should do this for you now? Here's the key. Yeah. If you, if you are building a house that's just the right size for you, uh -huh. it's probably going to have spaces like the office that I'm sitting in isn't, uh, necessarily going to be an office for the next family that moves here. It yeah. would make a great master bedroom, for example. It's designed so that I have a um, a closet and a storage room that are actually designed so that they could be turned into a bathroom and master bedroom closet. Mm. You know, and just thinking long term about how how is this going to be modified? Yeah. Because we know that it is. Right. But without it being excess. You know, I, th I think it's interesting that architects often have their offices in beautiful older homes because uh -huh. you can modify the house to right. make it what you want it to do. It's not that hard to do. And the character is wonderful. So it's the character that I really focus on. And if the room distribution changes, that's fine. No, no big deal. Yeah. It'll modify. It's funny. Like, that's just the space that I'm in up here. And again, people can't see it yeah. <laughs> when they're listening. But, you know, right. it's it's a finished attic that we're, we're fortunate the old owners had done this. And I'm in a tiny, it's like a 15, 1600 square foot house built in 1910. Right. Um, but the old attic was refinished before we moved in. And yeah. it was our master bedroom at first. We lived up here for five years right. or so. <laughs> then we had kids and we wanted to be down, you know, a level below. Yeah. So we, we moved downstairs. 
This was a guest bedroom during COVID. This was a homeschool right. classroom. It's my office space now. It's still right. a guest bedroom. It's the kids' That's playroom. Right. When my wife and I talk about, you know, potentially moving someday, it's like, we have everything we need here. And, you know, this house flexes for us. And it, That's it right. changes and as in we need it The to. space that you're in is like a, a room in the roof. Yeah, exactly. Which has a real benefit to it in that it can be made private. Uh-huh. And for people who work in their house. Yep. You need to have a place that you can create some privacy, especially if you have children. Yep. I wrote a couple of chapters in uh, More Not So Big Solutions for Your Home that describe how to locate an in-home office so that you have that privacy but also connection. Yeah. But it's very clear when you come up the stairs, you're at work. Oh, yeah. And the door locks down there, which is nice. And, and psychologically, the kids know that, that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. That's right. That's but, right. I, but I'm close enough that like, if I need to run right. down, you know, I'm right there. Yes. Um, I'm curious, sort of just going back into your sort of design history and, and what, you know, what makes you who you are, I guess. Um, right. I mean, you talked about in one of your books, kind of growing up in England, and I'm curious, just so I feel like there's, there's kind of two versions of, of growing up in England. There's like the, you know, like the beautiful <laughs> stone cottages of like the Cotswolds, right. and like right. the, the brutalist post-war concrete, you know, yeah. like, there, there's yeah. not a lot in between. I guess. Like, I'm curious just sort of about the house you grew up in. And, oh, it's a great question. Yeah. Well, I grew up in a, um, for the my the part that I have a memory of from uh-huh. four to 14, in a fairly standard village house okay. that had been built in 1960, I think it was. Okay. And um, they it was brick. Uh, if you watch any of the sitcoms on English television, it looks a lot like this. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so not particularly special. Yeah. But I went to a, a school where a number of the kids had really cool houses. Yeah. And I had a, for some reason, I was an architect before I was an architect, a memory for every house. So I could still today draw the plans and the and draw perspectives of the rooms that I loved in wow. those houses. So. I got an experience of what I call in my books nooks and crannies. Yeah. A lot of older English houses have these funny little spots, and I loved them when I was a kid. So I learned about how to make space intriguing. I, w- I always say in my books, you know, if you want to find the most interesting spot in your house, release a five-year-old for five minutes. <laughs> they will be in it. Yeah. <laughs> and that was me. I mean, when I was a little kid, I loved spatial experience. It was like a a kind of almost very, very exciting. Anyway, I can't describe it. But when did that click for you that that like that excitement you were feeling could actually be a career? It didn't happen very quickly. It was I drew plans. I tried to figure out how to draw stairs, all kinds of crazy stuff when I was a kid. It didn't connect that that's what architects did. I didn't know what that was. Right. Dad was an engineer, so I saw drawings all the time and models and that sort of thing. But it wasn't until I, ha- I went to a career day where we v- visited a number of different offices of different professions when I was in high school. We went into an architect's office and I was just like, oh, this is it. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, this is this is what I love. You yeah. know, and I feel it right away. That's so, awesome. And yeah. you said you lived in that house to 14. Was it, yeah. Did you come to the U.S. at that point? That's right. Then we moved to Los Angeles. And that's really where, if you read the beginning of uh, The Not So Big House, yeah. you hear my, you know, just like horror at, where are the people? Yeah. Because <laughs> I grew up in a village. I grew up basically 
in the old English version of what we're trying to do with the new urbanism today. Sure. Yeah, that's the reference that's like point for walking. <laughs> right. Um, what do you think kind of having that frame of reference coming from an old English village, like how did that shape your perception of America or just, you know, hugely. our built environment here? Yeah. Hugely. And and I think to start with, there was a real sense of loss, frankly, mm, sure. because so much of my participation in my day had to do with walking, mm. you know, running into people in the village. Uh, you know, it was just the community was such a strong part of my life. Yeah. And moving to this area of suburban Los Angeles, it was lovely, but it was empty of people. And so I remember we, my parents both got very large cars with the idea that it was safe to be in a bigger car. Right. But my father was terrified of driving it as a result. <laughs> so we walked a lot of places, but we were the only people walking yeah. for miles. You know, wow. it was just, wasn't, wasn't, didn't fit with how we knew how to integrate shopping into our lives, for example. Yeah. So, or even school, I'm sure, right? Like, walk yeah. to school every day, which is probably two and a half miles up wow. a hill, and <laughs> two and a half miles down a hill next, you know? Yeah. But it wasn't, it didn't fit with what I knew up until that point. So I definitely felt alien for quite a while. <laughs> yeah. And at what point then, like, when did that architecture, when did that light bulb go off that like, oh, this is a career, you mentioned drawing as a kid, but like, when did you as an adult say, okay, I can do this? It was really that day of uh, the career, the, you know, oh, that right, career, right. Uh, day visit, but it was, so I was probably 16, I yeah. think, you know, 17. And then it was like everything fit because I suddenly realized I had been given this two and a half year experience of a completely different world of yeah. architecture of house design of you know just how to live that because of the contrast between what i'd come from and where i was now i got to be a real observer of the american culture yeah i tell the story in the not so big house of how when i went into my friends houses their living rooms and dining rooms were clearly never used. Right. The only place they ate was in the kitchen. And I, it sort of boggled my mind because in England, every space was used right. every day. And there was a formality to our lives that wasn't very present in, in the American uh, everyday life. There's a formality to the rooms here, but not not to the actual culture and to the way it's we like were living left it. leftover from an old culture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So anyway, I became sort of a commentator on that. And then given that, how do we design our houses really for the way we live today rather than for that more formal world that we've left behind? Yeah. But that's, I feel like imagining you going to architecture school and Other. just thinking of sort of who your contemporaries were and things like, right. I imagine that that schooling taught a specific version of architecture. And I feel like you... Yeah, you you didn't go with that, and yeah, and, well, like what was that? Such a funny world because every every school of architecture has a different bent. Uh -huh. And when I first started, I was in California, and I went to um, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Oh, sure, yeah, which was a great school, it was one of the largest in the country. Um, I learned a lot about how architecture works there, but I realized I didn't know at that point I wanted to be a residential architect, but I got very interested in um, someone that you may know about, Christopher Alexander, who wrote a book called A Pattern Language. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with a number of other colleagues. And 
that book really changed my my life. Yeah. I realized, oh, this is a way of speaking about architecture to people who aren't trained in architecture, aren't trained in building, and give us a language that we can share. And so that book was pivotal in my life because if you look at what I've written since, in a way, it all grew from a pattern language, yeah. from learning how to explain what we do as architects to others through making basic principles that every person understands. Right. And so that's what Home by Design really brings forth my fourth book, yeah. where I'm using, I actually dedicated it to Christopher Alexander, because that modality of thinking about a principle and then how do I apply that principle in terms of design. I'll give, give people an example just so that we can, we've got something to talk about, but I talk about ceiling height variety, yeah, just sure. having different heights of ceilings for the dominant space and the subordinate spaces. So an alcove might have a lower ceiling and the dominant space a taller one. Yeah, But it's just sort of naming something, then suddenly you can say, oh, I like that. Oh, I want that. And you're aware of it too when you're walking around. And That's you say, right. Oh, yeah, I see that in, you know, exactly. Jim's house or whatever. I, That's yeah, right. right. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm curious too, you mentioned in the not so big house sometime living on a sailboat. And I'm, yes. I'm, I'm not a sailor, but I'm, I'm an RVer. And so oh, a lot yeah, of- Oh, yeah, so same deal. Yeah. Right. And, and as I was Absolutely. reading the book, I'm like, okay, like- there's a lot of this that applies to kind of just the, right. the way that RVs and, and sailboats and small space living is, is kind right. of laid out. But I'm curious right. just sort of your experience of living on a sailboat. Well, this was a, just a week of my life. Okay. On a, on a 40-foot Valiant. With, yeah. With, I was one of eight people. So everything was perfectly designed yeah. to fit us. Yeah. And, you know, in a, if anything poorly designed with eight people in 40 feet would be <laughs> absolutely awful right but the way that boat was designed it was an art piece it yeah. was fantastic and it was so exciting to be sailing and to find that someone had thought through how it all works yeah and uh, so it just made me think we could design our houses this way why not yeah. it's but more like a piece of furniture you know like a live-in piece of furniture than like you know, the sack I was talking about. Right, earlier. right. It's one of those things too, I think, like I'll find, you know, in the RV, for example, just you have a drink with you and you go to set it down in a cup holder and you say, yeah. oh, there's a cup holder right at the right height. It's Somebody right at arm's thought length. About like, this. Yeah, it That's wasn't just right. arbitrarily, you know, it's yeah. so interesting. Um, transitioning kind of from architecture to the not so big life, which is um, a book that I, I've just, I've seen your social media account posting, yeah. you know, little tidbits about it. And right. I was like, I've got to check that out. Obviously I knew you work as an architect, but not, right. not right. from sort of this space. I'm curious, just sort of like, by the time that book was published, you had done several architecture mm -hmm. books, mm -hmm. but this is, it's quite a gear shift into kind of, it it's a, yeah. it, it's a, a manual for living, I guess, and kind of taking those, those architecture principles, but, but applying right. them to life. Like wh where did the inspiration for that come from? And, and when was the time right to really write that book? Well, I'm going to just um, let your listeners know that the, the, actually I could not have started writing my not so big house series uh -huh. had I not started to live in what I call a not so big way. Yeah. What I mean by a not so big life is that you start to focus much more on your inner world and how very simply 
behavior patterns or thoughts that we constantly are telling ourselves stop us from taking the action that we would love to participate in. And a big one for me, which I write about in the introduction, and people can find it on my susanka.com website. The introduction just describes how I knew all my life I wanted to write. You know, we've been talking about the architectural journey, but the bigger story is that I was seven years old. I knew I wanted to write. Yeah. But my parents were quite sure that writing probably wasn't a great idea as a career. (laughs) (laughs) So they were worried about, you know, a starving artist. And and so I got encouraged into something that was more of a, a paycheck guarantee in their minds anyway. Right. But I loved to write and I I could always feel when I started to write that it was almost like a conversation with myself. And so I got to be, you know, this uh, partner of a very successful residential architecture firm. And I realized, oh, I have something to write about now that I really want to write. I could see all these people that really needed to understand how to use their money better to make the house that they really want rather than what they're told they should need. Yeah. And so that became the inspiration. But to get there, I had to overcome a huge pattern. And it's actually a pattern we see everywhere in our culture right now, which is that I was consistently way too busy to do anything other than what was on my schedule for the day. Yeah. And I realized this is actually a cage of my own creation. If I just start to prioritize that desire to write and say, I'm going to make myself into my own client. I'm going to post myself into my schedule. This is exactly what I did. And on Tuesday and Thursday mornings, I gave myself two hours on Thursdays and two hours on on, uh, Tuesdays. And that allowed for the space to start writing. It took probably a year to really figure out where am I going? What is it that I really want to write? And finding somebody that was interested, turned out that Fine Home Building of uh, Taunton Press approached me and said, we are just hiring a new uh, book publisher and we would very much like to have you write for us. And so they suggested, why don't you write the small house book? And I thought, that's not the right name. I want to be able to get to the people building the 7,000 square foot houses and say, look, what about a little smaller, but really beautiful, really be the best. And so I was writing just for myself uh, an introduction to give myself a sense of what this book might be. And I wrote, this should really be the not so big house. And Mm. I thought, there it is. Yeah. But none of that could have happened had I not made that internal shift that recognized, wow, there is a pattern of behavior that's running my life on automatic. Yeah. So the not so big life, which came out in 2007, is really about remodeling your own life right from within by looking at what patterns are keeping you stuck. Yeah, There's a heck of a lot more to that book, as I know you know from having read a bit of it. But it's, it's really about the inner journey of really finding out what you've got the capacity for by letting go of the things that are in the way. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, like, as I've been reading it, and you talk about just making the time for yourself, that, like, Something that you describe in the book that I've I've noticed happening for myself over the last three or four weeks or whatever it's been since I picked up the book is like time is it's a lot more fungible than we think it is. It is much more fungible than you think. And 
you know, when you when I first start talking to somebody about the not so big life, they've read it and they go, yeah, but my life isn't like that. Right. And I tell them it's only not like that because of the idea that you have about it. Right. And as you start to question, is that really true? Or try something different. Step out of your normal paradigm by just one thing. Things start shifting. Like my making that time to write. Yeah. It changed my whole life. Right. I didn't have to do anything beyond that. It right. happened. Yeah. But that interest in saying, I'm going to prioritize this, that's actually all I did. How much of it do you think, like changing your mindset to, to say, okay, I'm a writer now, as opposed mm -hmm. to like, I guess I should write or I want to write, like that, that changes yeah. things too, right? It does. Though I have to say, I don't know that I ever decided I'm a writer now. Mm. It was more like I didn't label. I more said, what do I love doing? Yeah. And that's what, when I talk to audiences today related to the Not So Big Life, I ask them, what is it that you long to do? It doesn't have to be in a work-related avenue. Yeah. I mean, it could be just going for a walk every day or, you know, whatever. Having a conversation with a friend across the country. Just do it. Yeah. Just allow yourself to do the thing. And then you may hear, you know, thoughts come up, well, I don't have time for that, or they wouldn't want to hear from me anywhere. Bypass that and go on and do it. Because yeah. that's the life changer. It's simple. But we have so many condition patterns that get in the way of those actions. Yeah. It's interesting. Like my uh, my dad comes from a big family. He's one of 12 kids. And oh, wow. starting in the beginning of the pandemic and continuing still to this sure. day, we do like big uh, family Zoom calls once a week. Oh, and yeah. just, you know, because we're all across the country and just it's right. a chance for everybody to catch up. And it's been interesting. You know, my dad is, uh, I guess he's 68, 69. He just turned 69. So he's at retirement age. He just retired. And a lot of his siblings, you know, plus or minus a year or two around him, kind of, I think right. there were three or four that all retired, like, at yeah. the same time. And hearing their stories of post-retirement, and you, you write about this in Not So Big right. Life, too, of like, yeah. they've gone on to do volunteer things or to do other things in the community or just, right. like, I, I'm I'm inspired, but also, I, I don't know, when I think about it, just, do I want to spend, you know, 40 years of my life doing something for money so then when I'm 65 or whatever, I can shift gears yeah. and do what I love. Like, right. why not do it now, right? That's right. We make this artificial line, and then we call this thing retirement. But you can start doing what you love now. Yeah. It's only because of a construct that we have built societally that says, you know, you work in the trenches, and then maybe we'll let you out. Right. You don't have to live that way. You yeah. know, you can do what you love now. And as you focus on the thing that you love, you're supported. Yeah. I did quit being an architect to become a writer. Right. I think it's really important to, to say that you don't throw in the towel of what's supporting you. Yeah. Take one small step. And as you do that, just your interest and your intention brings more of that. Yeah. It's just the way it works, but we don't know it. And so we hesitate or we say, oh, it's not going to work for me or, you know, all those ways of avoiding actually doing what we want to do. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny, too, we were talking about time being fungible, but I've also yeah. found that money is a lot more fungible than I thought it was. And really? That, you know, it's it's interesting, like, it ties into a lot of stuff in, in both uh, types of books, I guess, Not So Big House and right. Not So Big Life. Just, you can live with a lot less than you think you need, but right. that also, you don't often realize until you reprioritize just where your money's going. That's true, too. And there's another thing, which is even more 
kind of outrageous to contemplate. But when we focus on not having enough, yeah. we keep experiencing not having enough. Mm. But as you start to say, well, this is what I have, and I'm going to make the absolute most of what I have. Yeah. Just that little mind shift in the orientation of your comment, not the negative, but the essentially it's the positive. What's the potential here rather than what do I not have? Right. It changes your life. So I the little uh, phrase that I have in the Not So Big Life is focus on what you want, not what you don't want. Because mm. the more you focus on what you don't want, you keep getting what you don't want. Right. This is because... In consciousness, what's responded to is the subject of the sentence, not the don't want part. So mm. we keep focusing on the thing that we don't want, or we keep getting it. And it's all, it's a mentality thing. It's just, it's, it's a mentality. It's a it sounds ridiculous, but it yeah. really does work that way. Don't believe me. Go try it out for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, and you encourage, you know, there's a lot of yeah. um, activities in the book as well, right. kind of at the end of each chapter. And when I first picked it up, I was like, well, yeah, I don't know. I can probably just read through it, and yeah. and you kind of cautioned. I think at the end of the intro or something like, right. you really should should do the exercises. And so I've kind of forced myself to do that, and it is amazing just the things you learn. And you, you talk about being able to get to a place where you can see yourself objectively and kind That's of right. look at how you're spending time. You know, I, I was realizing just how often I was checking my phone, not for any good reason, but just you I, know because it was there and like losing a sense of presence because of that you exactly know? exactly you just you you it's so easy and today we have so many distractions so when i was writing that book um as i think i said in the book i didn't check my email or texts or anything else until after i'd stopped writing which yeah. i think at that point was at noon so i from 10 to noon i was just writing and so i had a clear mind space if you start letting the inter interruptions in it's really hard to get that that clear presence of just being. I would meditate, then I would write, and then I would go about my day. And it was a. I actually, <laughs> I long for that time again <laughs> because it was marvelous. It was a very wonderful pacing, and you could just feel. I could feel the informing happening through that writing. It was. It was really a treasure. Maybe I'll do another one. Yeah. Of, well, I'm, I guess that's kind of a question I have for you, too, is just thinking about, you know, your busy life and you talk about just presenting at conferences and obviously meeting with clients and, and different things like finding that time and, and telling yourself that you have the time, even if it's not your writing space, like you're saying, but just, you know, 10 minutes for meditation or whatever it is, yeah. some, some sort of mindfulness activities. Like Absolutely. Well, the thing that I, I do talk about this in um, chapters seven and eight of uh, The Not So Big Life, it sounds ridiculous. But if you take 20 to 30 minutes a day to meditate before you get off on the busyness of your day, it will change the quality of your life. Because by just calming down, meditation, by the way, a lot of people have misconceptions. It's really just being still. There will be thoughts, but just don't follow them. Yeah. Duly noted, you know, don't make your shopping list now. Let it just pass. But it, we we all have thoughts, even very practiced meditators. It's just that we're not getting involved in them. But just that little bit of calming changes the quality of the rest of the day. Yeah, because you're more likely to be more present in everything. Doesn't mean you won't have reactions. Doesn't mean it won't be difficult. But over the course of many months and ultimately years, it changes everything. And so that's. If there were one thing that that book could impart, that would be the one I would wish for most people. 
And I do have to tell you one funny thing yeah. about your comment about the exercises. Sure, yeah, yeah. And so I do. I make a real plug. Do the exercises in yeah. the book. But I discovered that when I, I do workshops about the not so big life and sure. do a lot of teaching these days about it, what I discovered was that people would get to that requirement and then they would stop reading because they hadn't <laughs> done the exercise. So I've in the paperback version it says keep reading, come yeah. back, do it again. <laughs> right. But it's that feeling of like, oh well, if I skip it. I probably won't come back. You know, I want to make the yeah, time now. That's right. <laughs> I know, it. I know. So you have my permission to move forward if it's, you find yourself getting stuck. <laughs> <laughs> that's good to know. Yeah. I'm, I, well, it's funny. It's been a slow read. I'm, I'm like there halfway through right now. Well, yeah, more than half, but more you know, than it's, um, uh, it, but it's very helpful and it's, it's been good. You know, the, um, I feel like a, a good place to end this is kind of something that, that applies to the not so big life, but also the not so big house. And I love this phrase. You'd said something to, I'm paraphrasing here, but the opposite of enough is too much. Like you want to kind of strive for enough. And that's right. That applies to our houses and that applies to all the things within our houses too, it seems. Exactly. Yeah. We, we just assume that if we've got enough, we need more. And it really isn't true. The quality of your life can be extraordinary with quite little. But if you're living, a full life, the environment in which you are doing it is actually not as critical. But yeah. as you start to live more fully, your environment does start to mimic your innards because that's the way it works. It's a reflection. Yeah. You start to love the place you live, inwardly and outwardly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sarah Suzanka there. The not so big house and all of its offshoots, the not-so-big life, all of them are worthwhile. Go check them out. Not-so-big life, is it's been eye-opening for me. It's been life-changing. And if you are in a place where you want to do some self-work and self-reflection and try to figure out how to make better use of your time, make better use of your energy, I really recommend it. I think it's a great book. If you're enjoying Willoughby Hills, you can become a member of the Willoughby Hills podcast and newsletter. You will get podcast episodes before anybody else, plus some bonus posts on the newsletter. I've started doing video posts, and those have been really fun. I did a tour of Downtown Crossing the other day and just kind of showed people all the different landmarks around and things that inspired my writing that maybe didn't make it into writing, but it was fun to kind of do it in real time and kind of walking around the street. So yeah, if you're not a member yet, please go and sign up for that. Go to heathrosala.com slash newsletter. And you can also sign up for free and just get the newsletter in your inbox twice a week. I publish every Wednesday and every Sunday. So go and check that out. I am at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Please give me a follow over there. And go read Sarah, man. Sarah Suzanka. It's good stuff. Thank you for coming to Willoughby Hills today. I will talk to you soon. Stay safe. <laughs>